wherever there are shadows, there are people ready to kick at the darkness until it bleeds daylight. This is Bleeding Daylight with your host, Rodney Olson. Remember, you can follow Bleeding Daylight wherever you listen to podcasts. Please share episodes with others and connect with us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. What would inspire you to walk 1,400 miles over just a few months? For my guest today, it was a tragedy. That tragedy has kept him searching for the good thing that is to come out of the bad. As hard as his story may be, it's also inspirational. Barry Atkins has warned tens of thousands of people about the dangers of binge drinking. It's a message that comes from his heart, because for Barry, it's extremely personal. It was a message that in 2007 compelled him to walk 1,400 miles from Arizona to Montana. He tells the story of that journey and the reason behind it in his book, Kevin's Last Walk. It's my pleasure to have Barry as my guest on Bleeding Daylight today. Thank you so much for your time. Well, I really appreciate you having me on, Rodney. I appreciate it. I know you've told this story so many times in the past, but I'm sure it's still painful. Take us back to the reason for your epic walk and the reason you're so passionate about warning people about binge drinking. My 18-year-old son, Kevin, died of alcohol poisoning on the day he moved out on his own. Uh, It was just one of those days where he wanted to move out. I tried to discourage him from doing that because he was the baby of the family. We really never had any problems with him. I really didn't want him to move out. And he was moving into a place with uh, three other guys and they threw a housewarming party for him that night. He passed out. The kids at the party laid him in his bed on his side in case he vomited. But his buddy Craig kept coming back in to check on him. Around 4 a.m., calls started coming into 911. The first calls were difficulty breathing. The next calls were not breathing. My son died alone in a hospital while I slept peacefully in my bed. It's a really hard thing to happen, and I know that there was communication between your son and others during that time, but you had no idea, did you? No, I had. As I always say, I'm that guy. When I got the knock on the door that next morning, Rodney, it didn't even occur to me. I, I open up the door and I see two police officers and someone in plain clothes stand at my front door. Should be a big, big red flag, but it wasn't. I actually joked with them as they came in thinking this had to have something to do with a dog or a parked car or something, but they didn't laugh at any of my jokes. One of the officers came in and stood in front of a chair that Kevin had sat in two weeks before and talked about how his life was just beginning He said there'd been an accident and that your son is dead. We asked who, because we have a number of children. And he said it was Kevin and handed us his driver's license. Until that moment in time, you're holding out hope that this is all just a big mistake. You've got the wrong Kevin Adkins. You need to be on the other side of town. You need to be three streets over or at least next door, right? But when they hand you your child's driver's license, you know he's gone and he's never coming back. Let's rewind a little. Tell me about Kevin. What was he like as a son? A couple ways to describe him. Uh, To be clear, he was a little bit like his old man. He was not a very good student. 
in elementary school with parent-teacher conferences and stuff, they would always try to find something good to say about him. And they always talked about how kind he was and what a good heart he had. He actually befriended a boy by the name of David when he was in third grade. David was in a wheelchair. Nothing wrong with David except his legs didn't work. But Kevin was that guy. Kevin was that guy that made sure that David got out of the playground and back to class and to the bus stop and really helped David out a lot because, you know, when you're in a wheelchair, it's a little harder to make friends, but but he stepped right up and did it. So this is the kind of person that he is. We hear that he's died from this session of binge drinking, of, of alcohol poisoning. Was that something that was regular for him? Was he a regular drinker? You know, that's <laughs> a good question. Uh, I've had kids ask me that question as well. There was a couple times I suspected that he might have, but I never really knew of any times when he did. I found out after the fact, Kevin's mom and I weren't living together anymore. We were separated. We were divorced. And I had custody of Kevin. As he got into high school, he started wanting to go over to his mom's on the weekends. And I, you know, again, I'm that guy. I thought, well, that's pretty cool. He's going over there developing a relationship with his mom. I found out after he died the reason he was going over there is because his mother would let him bring his buddies over there and drink at the house. So you would imagine that he'd already learnt to deal with alcohol, even though he was still quite young. And yet there was this one instance where it just went too far. What do you believe was the cause of it going too far? Was it that he had this this courage or, or this mistaken idea that he was bulletproof and could drink as much as he liked? Well, obviously he was. He was very much a 10 feet tall and bulletproof kid. He never believed anything would happen to him. And, you know, none of us did. I, I think there was a bunch of people at this party. There were somewhere around 20 people at this party, ages ranging from 14 to 28. I think they set out a bottle. It was either uh, Jägermeister or Jack Daniels and started pushing each other to do shots. And he had left a voicemail for his sister that night where he talked about doing six or seven shots in a row. His blood alcohol content was 0.36%. And I guess in that sense, he's in a home where this is his new home, where he's moving in with, with his buddies. It's not like he's drinking and driving. He feels he's in a safe environment, but totally unaware of the effects of just overconsumption. Yes. And, and one of the things, uh, as we follow this thought, is that people have always often asked me, did I talk to him about alcohol? The answer is No because uh, he had a family member, I'll leave it at that, that was an alcoholic. And he saw what it did to him and to his life. And he always said, I'm never going to be like that. I would never do that. He always talked, we talked a lot about drugs, but, but he had a real world example sitting right in front of him of what can happen if you're not careful. For some reason on that night, he decided he wasn't worried about it. And some people would assume that you're just someone who is completely anti-alcohol, but is alcohol ever acceptable in your mind? Yes, I think I'm a realist. The idea of going back to what we had here in the U.S. called prohibition, uh, that's never going to happen. A moderate amount of alcohol is okay, but there are people who can't drink anything. This family member, uh, he can't touch it, he can't smell it, he can't be around it. Otherwise, he's going to start drinking. And I don't think we can go back to the days of prohibition. I think 
that educating people about what can happen if you go too far about the dangers of drinking and driving and binge drinking, because there's a lot of other things that can happen when you drink too much. You can fall, you can decide to do something really dumb and jump someplace that hurt kids trying to jump off the roof into the pool. It's when you drink too much. I don't know where you are with that, but I, I going back to the days of prohibition just would, would just not work, I don't think. And so we're in this environment where young people especially have this expectation that they're going to drink not just for the sake of having a few quiet drinks that, that most of us would think is, well, that's okay, but it's actually drinking for the simple point of getting drunk. And I guess that's where your message hits is to say, this is not an acceptable way to live a life. Yeah, that's exactly it, Rodney. I, I'm not telling people they can't drink. I drink, but I have one beer. Uh, in the job that I do that pays my bills, I actually often end up in social functions at night where there's a lot of drinking going on, right? And as a, if you've ever sat in a pub or a bar all night sober, you know where I'm going with this. As the night goes on, people think they're getting cooler and cooler. And the reality is they, they aren't. I actually have a relative that's a cop that told me a story one time. Uh, he pulled this guy over that he suspected of drinking and driving. And if you get pulled over, if you have a beer in your hand, you would think you would hide that, right? That would be the right thing to do. Well, the cop walks up to the side of the car. The guy's got the beer sitting between his legs. <laughs> you think, okay, well, that's not so smart. Well, as the cop talks to him a little more, he finally asked him, okay, you need to step out of the vehicle, which is what they always do, right? So now for sure he would hide that beer on the floor, right? No, nope. he was so drunk, he handed the beer to the cop and asked him to hold it while he got out. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, wow. The brain is disconnected at that point. Now let's go back to that time when you were told – Kevin's gone and you have to start to process that because that leads you into that time of grief that we go through no matter what the circumstances are. But I guess in this circumstance, even more, you're thinking, what if, what if, what if, and, and trying to think, if only we'd had this discussion, if only this had happened, if only Kevin hadn't moved out, if only he hadn't been with those friends. Was that a big part of the grief and, and trying to come to terms with what had happened? In the beginning, absolutely. In the first couple of days, there was a lot of what ifs. Uh, and the only thing I can tell you that I learned from uh, several things about grief, but one of the things that my wife and I agreed on is I'm not going to blame anybody. It, there's just no money in it, right? Because you're blaming people and, and it doesn't change the facts. It doesn't bring him back. It only brings more pain to an already extremely painful situation. So in the beginning, I blame myself a lot. <laughs> Let's be clear. The number one job of a parent is to keep your kid alive. And I didn't get that done. So there's this idea in your mind that I'm at fault because of this. That must be an incredibly hard burden to, to carry. And, and very wisely, you made that decision. Let's not blame anyone. Where does the grief move to from there? I'll tell you where it moves. Uh, it, it's a very painful process, but I had something happen to me that completely changed it. You know, my son was dead. That's what it was. He was dead. And I was angry with God and I told him so. You know, I, I just didn't understand 
how he could let something like this happen. <laughs> this tells you where my mindset was. I, I was trying to bargain with him. I said, you're God, back up time, take me, let my son live. A couple days later, I had another life-changing event. This is a difficult one to talk about, but I was laying in bed when I felt what I can only describe as a presence in the room. That's the only way I can describe it. I felt like somebody or something came in the room. There was a light, a light I'd never seen before and haven't seen since. The message was clear. Kevin didn't suffer and something very good would come from this. It's not that it made everything fine. It didn't. But it did give me a mission, a mission to try to make something very good come from the death of my son, to figure out what something very good is. Why God chose me? <laughs> Rodney, I have no idea. There's plenty of other people out there that are much better Christians than I am. But as my wife pointed out to me, and she's my bride, the Bible teaches us that God chooses the unimpressive to do his work. And I qualify. God knew that I was in trouble, and I was. And he sent the cavalry. How do you then go about working out what that good thing to come out of this bad situation is? How did you then start to process that and decide where you're going to go with it? That's still what I'm wondering 16 years later. I actually spoke at his memorial. But let me read just a brief excerpt of what I said. Many of you have asked, what can I do to help? Well, here's what you can do. Each of you can make something very good come from this. I don't know if it's one something very good or a thousand something very goods. It might be a tiny something very good or a huge something very good. But I am convinced that something very good can come from this. I don't know who, what, when, where, how, but I know that it will. I ask each of you to find that something very good and make it happen. That is what you can do for us and for Kevin. That was the beginning. I, I just, where do you start with something like that? <laughs> it's a difficult thing to deal with, first of all, but then to decide how can I make something good happen? When did the idea of this walk happen? And what was actually the point behind this walk 1,400 miles across the country? So there's a couple details. I live in Arizona. We lived in Arizona. I grew up in Montana. Kevin had been to Montana a number of times and always talked about wanting to move to Montana someday and buy a ranch, right, out in the mountains. So we decided to take his ashes to Montana. The idea to walk there uh, was just something that, I don't know, I, I would call it God-breathed. <laughs> just one day I decided I was going to walk because one of Kevin's favorite movies uh, – the audience has never seen it. There's a movie called Lonesome Dove that has Tommy Lee Jones and Robert Duvall in it. It was his favorite movie. And in that movie, I'll give you give, give away a little bit of it. At, towards the end of the movie, Tommy Lee Jones agrees to carry the body of Robert Duvall back to Texas to bury him where he was the happiest. That's kind of in my mind how this all <laughs> connected, if that makes any sense at all. And so you s decided to take this walk. And really, you were, you were taking Kevin with you on this walk all the way to Montana. As you start this walk, had you 
prepared yourself to stop in at a number of schools and a number of places along the way? Or was that something that began happening organically? So in the beginning, what I thought I was going to do was walk the Continental Divide. That was my first thought. But I also knew that I wanted to tell the story. So I went out and tried to find a nonprofit or somebody to sponsor me, you know, and I'm just, I'm a hillbilly from Arizona. I didn't have a lot of luck, but I did finally find a nonprofit. Uh, It's not my kid. And they agreed to sponsor the walk. And so uh, you can imagine trying to coordinate when I'm going to be where, and they scheduled all of the speaking events. I don't know. I don't remember how many times I spoke 30, 40 times during that three month period. Uh, but they scheduled all that and we had to try to coordinate where I was going to be. Am I going to be fairly close to that school by then? <laughs> How far each week do I think I can walk? About what what town do you think you're going to be near? <laughs> you can imagine the logistics behind it was was a beast. It would be difficult because you've not done this kind of walk before. So you're immediately having to work out how far can I walk each day? You don't know how your your legs are going to hold up, but you're just having to assume. <laughs> so, so was the scheduling all done well before the walk or was it as you were going along thinking, okay, I think I'm going to be in this town on this day based on how far I've come? Well, I'm an engineer by trade. So you can assume that I planned it out as carefully as I could. Uh, we actually drove the route twice so that we could understand what does this look like? You know, how big are the hills? Where am I going to, you know, is this road suitable to walk on? Where are we going to stay every night? Because we had to plan hotels, all of those kinds of things. So I planned it as best I could because I didn't, I didn't want to be winging it. At the end of the day, you do it a little bit of winging because things change and additional speaking things come up. But I plan to walk 90 miles a week. Ultimately, that's what I did. People often ask me, did I ever think this was a bad idea when I went on the walk? Yes. Actually, Arizona, as much as you think it's a desert and it's flat, to get out of Arizona, uh, Arizona, Gilbert's at about 1,500 feet elevation. But uh, there's several passes that go up to 6,000 and then back down and then up to Flagstaff is 7,500 feet. I wasn't even Flagstaff. And, you know, it's windy and cold and raining. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, (laughs) what have I gotten myself into? But by God's grace, the further I went, the better I felt, the more I got into a routine and understood what to expect each day. How long did the walk take you in total? It was a little less than four. We scheduled for four months. It took about three and a half because I left, <laughs> this gives you an insight into my mindset. I left days that I called off days just in case I got sick or I got hurt. So every three or four weeks in the schedule, I would say, but I'm not doing anything that day just in case I got sick or something. But again, by God's grace, I didn't have a single sick day or weather day because every time I felt like taking a day off, I thought I might feel worse tomorrow. So I better get out and go. It just worked. And I, I, I tell everybody, if I could pull off something like this, imagine what you could do. <laughs> I'm not that clever of a guy. <laughs> 
I'm wondering too, you, you say that initially you had this sense of a presence in the room, there's this light that you've never seen since, and so you haven't actually had that happen again. But surely during this long walk, as you're there walking by yourself for hours each day, was there business that you got to do with God? Was there a gentle calling from God along the way in reassuring you of what you were doing? You know, he speaks in a number of different ways. It, it To me, it always felt like when I was having the worst day, he would do something that picked me up. Because when you're out on the road like that, people stop and talk to you all the time. When they do that, it helps pick you up, right? Because they're like, wow, this is great. Can you come and do this? You know, And then they'll tell you their stories of almost losing someone or losing someone to alcohol. One of the coolest things that happened was outside of Flagstaff, at Spoken Flagstaff High School, and I was a day outside of Flagstaff, sort of 20, 30 miles out. This car pulls up. I see him go by me, turn on his brakes. I'm like, oh, cool. We'll take a break and talk to this guy. And he comes up to me and he said, are you the guy that spoke in Flagstaff a week or, you know, a few days ago? And I said, yeah, that's me. And he said, you know, he gave me a hug and he said, that was the first time that his son ever came home and talked about what he did in school that day. And he wanted to thank me. And it was a lot easier to walk the rest of the day after that, right? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, that you, you must have had a number of those those ways in which you just your your spirits were lifted, and you thought, "Yeah, this is all all worth it." I'm wondering for the the students that you're talking to, it's a difficult thing to talk about to them, but were they responsive, or did they just sit and listen with a blank blank stare, trying to absorb what you were talking about? What was that like for you? Yeah, again, it's it, it takes time to learn how to speak to students, but uh, I can tell you that several principals came up and said, I have never seen a group of a thousand students that quiet in my life. They were clearly listening. One of the things that I tell kids now, as you learn what you should tell them, I talk to them up front. I tell them, hey, I'm not here to tell you how to live your life. If you're expecting somebody to preach to you, that's not going to happen. I'm just here to tell you a story. But as you listen to that story, do me a favor. Think about, you know, what do you want your story to be? Where do you want to be in five years or 10 years or 20 years? But it, it's just to get them to think about, you know, the future and what, what do you want your story to be? I'm not telling you how to get there because I don't know. You don't know, I don't know, nobody knows, but just helping them to think more critical thinking is what I try to do. And what are some of the other things that you experienced along the way? I guess you're you're dealing with the physical aspects of it, of perhaps sore feet or sore muscles, but then those moments, as you say, that will pick you up or just remind you that you're doing this for a purpose. What were some of those stories? So I guess probably the, the next one I like to tell is um, I was near Page, Arizona, which is a Lake Powell. It's a very large lake here in Arizona. And I was stopped. I was taking a break because I, I figured out it's not a race. You can I walk three miles, take a break, three miles, take a break. And I was taking a break. And this guy pulls up in this really old, this is before Nissan. It was a Datsun. 
it was like a 72 Datsun or something. And this guy who looked like he really didn't have much got out and he started talking to me and saying, oh man, this is really great that you're doing this. We talked for a while and when we got done, he handed me $5 and said, get something to eat when you get back to town. And there was a part of me that said, he, he, he can keep the $5. I don't, I don't need $5. But you can never deny people that joy of being a part of something like this. It's something that's stuck in my head. There's a few stories, but that one really, uh, if you think about that, this guy clearly did not appear to have any money, but he wanted me to have something. I've never forgotten it. There's just so many stories, I'm sure, that come from this this walk along the side of roads of of people that you're passing each day and I guess wondering what their stories might be as you continue on. Did you have anyone with you on this walk? Was it just you solo? So there was some logistics. My my daughter walked, her and her husband walked part of it with me and they would alternate walking with me one day and then the next day. I'm a happily married man. My wife met me every three miles. She would drive up and park. She actually kept a document where she would write down the mile marker and the time and then she would drive three miles ahead, right down the time. And when I got there, and she tracked me all the way. Just she kept a pretty close eye on me, which was very helpful to understand. You know, you know, okay, she's going to be there in three miles. I can get something to eat from her or whatever I needed. She would get it for me. So uh, it was not a solo. It was uh, as I used to tell the kids, I'm just the dude that did the walking and talking. There was people behind the scenes scheduling things and figuring out what hotel I'm going to go to next. And, oh, by the way, could you fit this school in on this day? Uh, there was a lot of that. There's people that would stop and say, hey, could you come to our school? I'm like, yeah, what what day, what time? Let's, let's make it happen. I mean, it made for longer days, but I really didn't turn down any that were even reasonable requests. And all this time, this is becoming like a lifestyle as it happens over several months. I'm wondering as you got closer and closer to your destination, as you got to Montana, what was that feeling like for you, knowing that this chapter is going to close? There must have been a mix of joy, I've done it, but also I'm about to leave behind something that has become a way of life over the last few months. It was a way of life. We discovered we could live out of a hotel and a couple of suitcases. But if you think about it, doing a walk like this, every day you know exactly what your goal is, right? And that's part of the struggle with life is that we don't know. We know what our goal is, but we really don't know what to do. For me, I knew what it was. It was to get out and walk and to walk some more. As I got closer to the end, physically, I was really glad to be there. Because you're always wondering, it's in the back of your mind, am I going to get hit by a car? Am I going to fall in a ditch? Whatever, right? Something going to happen that prevents me from finishing it. But you also know, as you just said, it's the end. We're going to leave his ashes there and we're going to move on. And for me, I don't know if it's the something very good. I still don't. That search continues 16 years later. I completed the walk. I wrote a book about it. I still tell the story oh, I don't know, 20 or 30 times a year, maybe more. But is it the something very good? 
Or is that the point that I'll never know what it is? The book came obviously after the walk. Is is the book just a, a chronicling of this walk or is there something deeper in there? Is there a, a further message in, in the book, Kevin's Last Walk? It's a little bit of both. It basically is the story of what led up to the walk. And then I had kept a journal on the walk that I went in and, you know, cleaned up and did some clarification and that kind of stuff. Writing a book, I'm, I'm not a writer. <laughs> it was harder for me to write that book than it was to, uh, to walk to Montana because it's not as well defined. Uh, so I read a lot of books. Uh, I actually wrote, a, read a book by Stephen King on writing. He actually gave some of the best advice. He said, just write, just write. When you're ready to write, just write. Don't, don't worry about where it's going to go or how it's going to fit. Just write. And you'll figure out later where to put it. And then I had it reviewed by book club and, they all went around and said, oh, it's a great book. Well, my family told me that too, and I knew it wasn't, right? And I would I would love to rewrite it, but the time just hasn't presented itself. But I wanted people to tell me what they didn't like about the book, and that's what I did was I really wanted people to tell me, what didn't you like about it? You know, because I'm not a writer. I don't know if you've didn't, done any writing, but it's, it's a complicated process, I discovered. I'm wondering about the responses that you've had from the book. It's been quite a while since the walk. It's been quite a while since you lost, Kevin. Are there people that have got back to you over the last 16 years about that instance or the times that you've been at their school and said, you know what, this actually helped me through through my life since then? You know, it has, and there is obviously a number of stories that go around that. But uh, one of the things that I've done uh, when I'm able to do it is I passed out a card that had the three thing, three key takeaways, uh, which we'll get into in a bit. But um, what I tell people is three things is going to happen to this card. You're going to put it in your wallet. You might throw it out on the way out, or you might take it home and tape it to the bathroom mirror. And I had a lady reach out to me to ask me to speak at a school. I think it was. And I said, how did you hear about me? And she said, my husband has your card taped on the bathroom mirror. To me, that's, that tells me something there. I mean, obviously, I, I've gotten a lot of good feedback. And probably one of, the, one of the other really cool stories was that I spoke at a school up in Scottsdale. And a couple weeks later, I got an email. The kids that were one of the kids that was at that when I presented was at a party. And there was another kid there that passed out. And he wanted to call 911. The other kids at the party didn't want to because they were underage. But this kid knew, this kid that was passed out was in trouble. So he put him in his car and drove him to an urgent care facility who called 911 and the air vacuumed him out and saved his life. Wow. It, it must have felt like the whole thing was, was worth it for the sake of knowing that at least one life has been saved because of this message that you carried across the country. Yeah, and, and I'll never know, and I don't think it's for me to know how many lives have been changed by the story. I've had several people tell me it's not for you to know. Tell me about that card that you left with people as you travelled across the country. What were the three things that you called people out to do? So, again, I'm a pretty simple guy. 
So there's three things. And the first one is about decision-making. The two most important decisions that you or your child is ever going to make are about drugs and alcohol. We all know stories about gifted people who threw it away on one of those things. You need to educate yourselves about the dangers of drug and alcohol abuse as if your life and the lives of your children depend upon it. Because it does, man. I mean, it just does. And the second thing is about adversity. Bad stuff's going to happen to us all. You know that, Rodney. It's the way you handle it that matters. Bad stuff is going to happen to you. Notice I'm not saying it might happen to you. It will happen to you. The way you respond to adversity is going to define your life. I think everybody can look back in their lives and know that there were these moments when you have to be able to respond to it. And third and perhaps most important is about forgiveness. It was easy for me to forgive the guys at the party because this was Kevin's decision. And it was easy for me to forgive my kid because that's what we do. But there's one person that was pretty tough to forgive, and that was me. It took 1,400 miles and five pairs of shoes, but I have found a way to forgive myself. I heard a pastor say once that anger and vengeance lead to one thing, destruction. Forgiveness leads to healing. And sometimes, sometimes the most important person you need to forgive is yourself. Because none of us are perfect, including me. I know that there will be parents listening who say, well, my son or my daughter is involved in risky behavior around alcohol or perhaps even drugs. They don't want to listen to a lecture from mum or dad. How do I reach out? How do I actually speak through that, cut through that, to let them know that I'm here for them and that this is something that could lead to a direction that they really don't want to go down? You know, I have an answer for that, and it's the same answer that I tell students and parents. For the parents, you can use tools online. You can do uh, Google Alerts or you can just read the paper. And what you want to do is be talking to the other parent when the student is in the room. Because I don't know what your experience has been there, but when I'm talking to my wife about something and the kids are there, I'm not talking to the kids, I'm talking to my wife. But they're listening to everything I'm saying, right? So you're not talking to them, you're talking to a spouse about some event that happened, a drug overdose, or an alcohol overdose, you know, a DUI where someone was killed. And by talking to the spouse instead of the the kid, it makes it more disarming. They can just listen and you're not expecting a response from them. And the same thing applies to kids. I tell them, hey, if you want your parents to talk to you about it, but you don't know how to start it, have a conversation with one of your friends on the phone about it when your parent's in the room. And I promise you, when you hang up the phone... (laughs) that's going to start the conversation because the parent's going to say, okay, what was that all about? Right. But it's an indirect way because it's an awkward thing to do, right? Oh, Hey, we're going to talk about drugs and alcohol today. Okay. (laughs) But as you use real life experiences and examples, and maybe you're not talking directly to them, they're still listening. Have you had responses from people that have said, yeah, Hey, this, this really worked. And this, 
has made a difference for me and my family? Yeah, I've had parents get back to me and say, yeah, this is a, I've had kids also tell me, you know, that uh, I did that and it, it did help. And I've had counselors tell me that, you know, when I go in and speak at schools, they're like, that's such a great idea. I'm going to repeat that several times and tell parents that because it's, it's kind of an indirect way of doing it because I'm not really an in-your-face guy. And then how do you start that? I, I don't have any other better ideas of how you start that conversation except examples. This is what happened. If people are wanting to get a hold of the book or to find out a little bit more about you, what's the best place for them to go? Uh, the book is available on Amazon. It's Kevin's Last Walk, Father's Final Journey with His Son, uh, the best way to get a hold of me now, people just like Facebook. <laughs> I know it's dating me, but uh, on Facebook, it's Kevin's Last Walk. I'm pretty easy to find. We'll put the details of how to contact you in the show notes at bleedingdaylight.net so people can just go there. We'll put the links back to it and, and people can grab the book or get in touch with you. Now, I know that as you've talked to tens of thousands of people over the years, you've left that card with people, you've left them with that final message. And I guess I'm asking you to do the same right now as a thing that you want to leave with people as you leave this conversation. What would you say to people that are listening right now? I'm that guy. I'm that guy who never believed anything would happen to his kids. You're that guy. You're that gal. You have to understand that it can happen to you. There may not be any big warning signs. There could be warning signs, but there may not be. And to be vigilant, to have those conversations, those awkward conversations about what can happen. And again, use the examples uh, of what you've seen happen because nobody believes it's going to happen to them. And that was me. That was Kevin. I just never thought in a million years that I'd be the guy out telling this story. I, that was not part of, <laughs> as much as you can't plan your life, that was not part of my plan <laughs> was to get out and do this stuff. But it can happen to you. It can. Barry, it's been wonderful talking to you out of a very difficult and sad circumstance. You've been able to touch many thousands of lives. So I want to thank you for that. And I want to thank you for spending some time with us today on Bleeding Daylight. You bet, Rodney. I appreciate the time. Thank you for listening to Bleeding Daylight. Please help us to shine more light into the darkness by sharing this episode with others. For further details and more episodes, please visit bleedingdaylight.net.